Hello, and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. On today's episode, we finish our look at Ezekiel 4 through 7, zooming in on chapters 6 and 7. As God continues to personally and passionately prosecute his people for their covenant crimes, we'll notice a peculiar emphasis on the land itself and talk through what that might mean for us today. Well, I got some more exciting news for the Rebind. Bit by bit, we're making this thing better and have more features on it for you and more practical. And so the next step in that has been social media. So you can find us now on Twitter, on Instagram, and on Facebook. Just a way of keeping you updated with samples of new episodes, as well as any news that you'll want to know. So be sure to check us out. You can find us on the Rebind, one word, on Twitter. Uh, the Rebind podcast on Instagram, and you can search for the Facebook page, The Rebind, or go to fb.com slash The Rebind. The other day, I was watching a TV show that I had grown pretty attached to when all of a sudden this long credit scene popped up and it hit me. Holy crap, this is the end of the show. <laughs> like it's over. There's no more episodes coming. I don't even have time to process my grief. You ever get that sad feeling when a show that you love ends, especially when it's not a very happily ever after ending? I ended up spending like 20 minutes on a walk with Stephanie just emotionally venting and re-explaining the plot and the characters. And needless to say, it was more for my sake than hers. So what I'm getting at with that actually, um, besides just emotionally venting to you too, I was looking at my plans for the Rebind and how much of Ezekiel we've gone through and how much we still have to look at, and it hit me, you know, this is kind of cool. Yes, the book of Ezekiel is massive, but it's kind of like one long epic TV show with lots of seasons, one awesome story to get wrapped up in that'll absorb us into the drama and the characters for a long time to come. The longer we spend sitting on the shores of the Kibar Canal with the prophet, The more we live in the plot and relate to the characters, the more we'll become a part of the story, the more the story will become a part of us in all its highs and lows. So we're jumping back into our step-by-step journey through Ezekiel's pages, picking right back up where we left off with chapter 6. But I know it's been two weeks since the last episode, so consider this the previously on montage to catch us back up to speed. In terms of the big picture, Ezekiel is 48 chapters long, full of provocative, harsh, and vivid prophecies. But it's not just a random compilation of angry rants. There's a clear, artistic, intentional development to the book with an intentional message, and purpose running throughout. The Israelites living in exile in a foreign land have continued in their stubborn spiritual rebellion, but they've masked it in new and clever ways, banking on half-truths, putting up all kinds of psychological barriers to what God is trying to get through to them. So the first part of the book is full of those provocative, harsh vivid prophecies and prosecutions trying to wake the people up to their situation before God 
call them back to him. But once the doomsday actually comes and the city of Jerusalem falls, then the tone and focus of the book shifts, and God can now build up his broken down people to bank on him in the right way for the right reasons. As we started out in Ezekiel, we looked at the introduction in chapters 1 through 3, that critical vision of an overwhelming God who's active and present both to save and to judge. But the flip side of that vision was God's vision for Ezekiel, his prophet preparing him for a challenging mission to a very stubborn audience. But now we're out of the weeds of that introduction and into the thick of it as we look at the first set of Ezekiel's actual prophecies. Chapters 4 and 5 were full of these dramatic sign acts, these acted out messages of God embodied in an elaborate display. There's a brick model of Jerusalem being sieged, sitting there on the ground. The prophet himself is actually involved in the drama as he's bound up, stuck with a disgusting diet, prophesying on his side against the taken over city. It's all very shocking. The word of the Lord is visualized and concretized so that the ordinary people trying to just keep their heads down are forced to jolt their heads back up and take it in. And then the word of the Lord seen is complemented with the word of the Lord heard. In other words, the acted out prophecies get paired with some more straightforward denunciations in the rest of chapter 5. And harsh as some of those prosecuting judgments may seem at times, they're actually just a rehashing of Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. God is not randomly lashing out against his people so much as he's laying down the law of what they've already signed up for in their covenant with him. So today we come to the second part of that chapters 4 through 7 section, starting out in chapter 6, as things continue to crescendo and amp up. And I've asked Sam Van Skoyek to read Ezekiel 6 for us. So get your popcorn ready and listen to this next clip in God's story. Ezekiel chapters 6 and 7 in the Christian Standard Bible Translation. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, face the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them. You are to say, Mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. This is what the Lord God says to the mountains and the hills, to the ravines and the valleys. I am about to bring a sword against you, and I will destroy your high places. Your altars will be desolated and your shrines smashed. I will throw down your slain in front of your idols. I will lay the corpses of the Israelites in front of their idols and scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you live, the cities will be in ruins and the high places will be desolate, so that your altars will lie in ruins and be desecrated. Your idols smashed and obliterated, your shrines cut down, and what you have made wiped out. The slain will fall among you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Yet I will leave a remnant when you are scattered among the nations. For throughout the countries there will be some of you who will escape the sword. Then your survivors will remember me among the nations, where they are taken captive. How I was crushed by their promiscuous hearts that turned away from me, 
and by their eyes that lusted after their idols. They will loathe themselves because of the evil things they did, their detestable actions of every kind. And they will know that I am the Lord. I did not threaten to bring this disaster on them without reason. This is what the Lord God says. Clap your hands, stamp your feet, and cry out over all the evil and detestable practices of the house of Israel, who will fall by the sword, famine, and plague. The one who is far off will die by the plague. The one who is near will fall by the sword. And the one who remains and is spared will die of famine. In this way, I will exhaust my wrath on them. You will all know that I am the Lord when their slain lie among their idols around their altars, on every high hill, on all the mountaintops, and under every green tree and every leafy oak, the places where they offered pleasing aromas to all their idols. I will stretch out my hand against them, and wherever they live, I will make the land a desolate waste from the wilderness of Dibla. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Notice in typical Hebrew fashion, the intensity is amping up. The scope of judgment envisioned here is no longer just the brick model of the city Jerusalem. Ezekiel turns his gaze in foreign lands to the land of Israel, and he prophesies against the range of mountains. Ezekiel chapter 6 is another denunciation, another prophecy of woe, another calling out of covenant crimes, taking the Israelites to court. But this time, Ezekiel is called to address the prophecy to the mountains of Israel, not to the people, to the actual mountains. If in chapters 4 and 5, God's message of judgment was embodied in the prophet, Here in chapter 6, it's concretized in the very landmarks of their nostalgic homeland. Now, besides the mountains being a vivid landmark to help with the concrete nature of these pronouncements, they weren't exactly Mount Everest, okay? When it mentions high places, it's not a measurement so much as a religious term. The mountains were the focus of the cultic activity where the people worshipped the popular gods of power and sex, the Baals and the Asherahs, the Zeus and Aphrodite of their day. Here again, we see pretty verbatim connections to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, the covenant curses that were promised should the Israelites break the terms of their relational agreement with the Lord. We read part of that last time we were talking about Ezekiel 4 and 5. Just as a snapshot, if you remember Leviticus 26.30 says, I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars. And that's exactly what's being depicted here. Ezekiel is not just being creative, coming up with new punishments. He's painting the same picture from long ago and a different medium to help the people see and hear the same warning afresh. What God has promised will come. These curses will find out the consequences of your sins and the very areas of your life that you thought were immune because of your religion are the places where God will visit and bring to justice. But notice in the middle of this chapter, the middle of this prophecy, we get a glimpse 
at God's impassioned involvement in all this. The Lord actually relays to the people how broken up he is over their deep-seated betrayal. He's not just a robot Zeus in the sky hurling down his lightning bolts at evildoers like an algorithm. Here, like so often throughout Ezekiel, the dominant metaphor for the Lord's relationship with Israel is a marriage. Their wicked idolatry is spiritual whoring, which might be more literal than we think depending on what the popular religion they were reveling in practiced. And the devoted spouse in this relationship, the Lord, is personally invested and broken over the betrayal. His wrath is a personal anger, not a detached one. It's personal without being petty. It's objective without being indifferent. Evangelical Christians tend to treasure the idea of having a personal relationship with God And sometimes our own ideas of what that means and involves can skew God's own expectations for our relationship with him. But in all reality, there's no one who's more personally involved, no one who cares more for that relationship, no one who's more invested in it, who attends more to how we engage in it than God himself. We see that all throughout Ezekiel. And this section is just one example of that. The disaster he brings down on the mountains of Israel is actually part of his being faithful to his word, faithful in every respect, despite the manifold faithlessness of his people. They will know that I am the Lord. My threats to bring this catastrophe on them were not empty, he says. Over and over in this chapter, we see that line repeated, Then you shall know that I am the Lord. And they will know that I am the Lord. Then they will know I am the Lord. That phrase has been dubbed the divine recognition formula. Sounds kind of cool, right? And we see it a lot uh, in places throughout Ezekiel. That says something about the message of this chapter and the message of the book why any of these judgments are happening in the first place if the people refuse to repent because of them anyway. One scholar, Ian DeGuid, was talking about this divine recognition formula or phrase in his commentary on the book of Ezekiel. And he said, quote, The knowledge of the Lord comes about not through self-examination and navel-gazing, but rather as a direct result of God's actions in history. This raises the question, however, as to what kind of knowledge of God they will attain in exile. Is it the forced knowledge of the rule of God in the world, such as the Egyptians received, when after plague upon plague, they saw their horses and chariots drowned in the Sea of Reeds? The purpose of that power encounter was so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, Exodus 14.4 and 18. Yet the knowledge they received is the knowledge of despair, not hope. Or is it the knowledge of God that comes to the repentant whose attachment to sin is broken through discipline? Both possibilities seem present in this passage. End quote. So let's just slow down for a second to think about that. 
By highlighting and promising the just judgments of God, these prophecies invite us to experience a true knowledge of God that is otherwise not possible. The point of God's judgment in the book of Ezekiel is not judgment for its own vindictive sake. And the point of hope in Ezekiel is not hope for its own um, uplifting sake. It's all for the sake of knowing God as he truly is, as he truly acts, as he truly sees, and as he truly calls us to see. God breaks into history in a decisive way so that we might decisively know him, the way we know a president by what he does in office and not just what he promises, the way we know a spouse after living with them and living out their vows, not just hearing them recited to us. Now, we may think, okay, but I haven't had any crazy visions of God in the night or had any theocratic capital city destroyed in judgment, so does that knowledge really apply to me? Well, yes and no, but mostly yes. God is not there just to be read about. He has acted, will act, and continues to act in our lives. And that activity, as promised and envisioned in Scripture, is part of our actual relationship, our actual knowledge of him. But remember, these exiles that are hearing Ezekiel's prophecies are not actually going to be in Jerusalem when it falls either. The experience of that reality and why it happened and coming to grips with all that is part of coming to grips with who God is. And that's something that we can come to grips with, too, as we journey through Ezekiel. I've not set up these covenant laws in vain, God says. But one last thing to chew on as we mull over this episode in the story of Ezekiel. If the people listening to this are in a foreign country deported from Israel, how do you think they would have heard this? Yet I will leave a remnant when you are scattered among the nations. For throughout the countries, there will be some of you who will escape the sword. Hey, wait a minute, Danny, that's us. We're in Babylon. We're scattered through the countries. Then your survivors will remember me among the nations where they are taken captive, how I was crushed by their promiscuous hearts that turned away from me and by their eyes that lusted after their idols. They will loathe themselves because of the evil things they did, their detestable actions of every kind. Is that going to be me? Am am I going to be one of the Israelites, one of those exiles that really sees what's happened and responds with that kind of honest humility and healthy shame? Is there maybe even hope for me in that? See, these are rich layers to the prophecies that hit us when we treat it like we do our favorite TV shows and not just a vegetable that we need to plow through with our noses plugged to get to the dessert. With Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 in our lenses, we see the faithful follow-through of a dependable God contrasting with the faithless opportunist and self-deceived egos of the Israelites. 
with listening ears picking up that repeated phrase, and then you will know I am the Lord. We see a grander purpose than just judgment or hope for its own sake. God's invested actions in the world are designed for us to know him as he truly is, as he truly acts and sees and calls us to see. Reading this passage with the full range of our emotions and not just our intellects, we feel that invested involvement of God, personal but not petty, objective but not indifferent, called wrath because it's his own anger broken up by the betrayal of his own people, portrayed like a cheating spouse. Walking through Ezekiel with a good grip on the background and audience, we pick up on the implicit message and invitations within the proclamations. The exiles were the very kind of people being described in the middle of the chapter, remnants left over in other nations, with the chance to recognize what they've done and know God as he shows himself to them. These are the rich layers to these prophecies that hit us when we dig a little deeper. And all of that is just in chapter 6. So let's now turn to the finale in our section spanning from chapters 4 to 7 and tune in to part 2 of the episode for today. Ezekiel chapter 7. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, this is what the Lord God says to the land of Israel. An end, the end has come on the four corners of the earth. The end is now upon you. I will send my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. I will punish you for all your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity or spare you, but I will punish you for your ways and for your detestable practices within you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. This is what the Lord God says. Look, one disaster after another is coming. An end has come. The end has come. It has awakened against you. Look, it is coming. Doom has come on you, inhabitants of the land. The time has come. The day is near. There will be panic on the mountains and not celebration. I will pour out my wrath on you very soon. I will exhaust my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. I will punish you for all your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. I will punish you for your ways and for your detestable practices within you. Then you will know that it is I, the Lord, who strikes. Here is the day. Here it comes. Doom is on its way. The rod has blossomed. Arrogance has bloomed. Violence has grown into a rod of wickedness. None of them will remain. None of that crowd. None of their wealth. And none of the eminent among them. The time has come. The day has arrived. Let the buyer not rejoice and the seller not mourn, for wrath is on her whole crowd. The seller will certainly not return to what is sold, as long as he and the buyer remain alive. For the vision concerning her whole crowd will not be revoked, and because of the iniquity of each one, none will preserve his life. They have blown the trumpet and prepared everything, but no one goes to war. For my wrath is on her whole crowd. The sword is on the outside. Plague and famine are on the inside. 
Whoever is in the field will die by the sword, and famine and plague will devour whoever is in the city. The survivors among them will escape and live on the mountains. Like doves of the valley, all of them will moan, each over his own iniquity. All their hands will become weak, and all their knees will run with urine. They will put on sackcloth, and horror will overwhelm them. Shame will cover all their faces, and their heads will be bald. They will throw their silver into the streets, and their gold will seem like something filthy. Their silver and gold will be unable to save them in the day of the Lord's wrath. They will not satisfy their appetites or fill their stomachs, for these were the stumbling blocks that brought about their iniquity. He appointed his beautiful ornaments for majesty, but they made their detestable images from them, their abhorrent things. Therefore, I have made these into something filthy to them. I will hand these things over to foreigners as plunder and to the wicked of the earth as spoil, and they will profane them. I will turn my face from them. I will turn my face from them as they profane my treasured place. Violent men will enter it and profane it. Forge the chain, for the land is filled with crimes of bloodshed, and the city is filled with violence. So I will bring the most evil of nations to take possession of their houses. I will put an end to the pride of the strong, and their sacred places will be profaned. Anguish is coming. They will look for peace, but there will be none. Disaster after disaster will come, and there will be rumor after rumor. They will look for a vision from a prophet, but instruction will perish from the priests and counsel from the elders. The king will mourn, the prince will be clothed in grief, and the hands of the people of the land will tremble. I will deal with them according to their own conduct, and I will judge them by their own standards. Then they will know that I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is truly a culmination of all that we've seen so far in multiple senses. Think about the scope of what's envisioned here. We've moved from the brick model Jerusalem to the distant mountains of Israel to finally an unfolding wrath on the four corners of the land. The judgment itself is nearly personified. The end is awakened. The doom comes to them. The wrath is poured out. But the Lord himself is the one who judges them according to their ways. If you remember our discussion of chapters 4 and 5, we talked about how there's multiple aspects to that message. There's the word of the Lord seen and the acted out synax and the word of the Lord heard in the more direct proclamation. But here in chapter 7, it's almost like a hybrid. As the verbal proclamation unfolds like a movie in vivid scenes, we won't take time to analyze all of those verbal scenes in this finale, but let's think through what we might take away from all this. It's obviously all very harsh, very provocative, very vivid. We have probably never heard Ezekiel 7 preached in church or taught in a Bible study. And you know what? We probably can't even find anything out there that's even tried. 
to think about our God, the God who saved and delivers us, describing in such detail what he will do to those who side with evil and spurn the mercy he shows, well, it's not something we're accustomed to, to say the least. It's actually something we're accustomed to avoiding, like the Israelites in a sense, which makes all this even harder to hear. But friends, it is far better to wrestle here and now with that wrath, to know our holy God in that way we would never know otherwise, to open all of that personal struggling up to him in prayer and come to grips with both his mercy and judgment. It's far better to do that than to sit on this, to sit on so much of the Bible, knowing that these passages are there, but ignoring them letting the elephant in the room grow fat, letting the whispering voices of doubt tell us there's no way to actually make sense of them, let alone benefit from them. So we just have to pretend the Bible is only made up of the parts that we like. Look, God doesn't shy away from this. That's why it's here in Holy Scripture for us. And if he doesn't, then what gives us the right to? What if this shocking prophecy that jolts our drowsy heads up is meant to put us on trial and not God? We will have plenty of opportunities throughout our many seasons in Ezekiel to ask these questions, to see what God is showing us, and to work through it together. I'll, I'll be here to help walk through that journey with you. But for now, I want to focus on chapters 4 through 7 as a whole and some of its unique features that contribute to the Christian message and, and have an impact on the way that we think and live today. So if you think about everything we've covered, what are some of the things that it all has in common? What features of these prophecies overlap as things amp up more and more from chapter 4 to chapter 7? Well, if we think about Jerusalem being drawn out and acted on, and we think about the mountains themselves being prophesied against, and we think about the four corners of the land of Israel receiving God's judgment unfolding in scenes like a movie, then we see there's definitely a strong emphasis on the land of Israel itself. When you saw the title of this episode, The Earth's Destruction, I'm guessing you envisioned something of an apocalyptic doomsday, like something out of the Left Behind series or a cheesy thriller movie like 2020 or The Day After Tomorrow. Well, actually, that last one's pretty decent. But anyway, there's an element of that for sure in the judgments of Ezekiel 4-7. to But the title was really meant to be a kind of gotcha play on words. These chapters don't just probe a comet explosion kind of out of nowhere end of the earth. They probe the tangible ways that we have brought destruction on the earth. The vivid and provocative ways that the earth has come to embody and house our own corruption and crimes. It's not just the destruction coming to the earth. It's first the destruction that the earth has produced. The destruction that's being destroyed. You remember back in Leviticus 26 where it says, Then the land will make up for 
its Sabbaths, all the days that it lies desolate, while you are in the land of your enemies. Then the land will rest and make up its Sabbaths. All the days of the desolation, it will have the rest it did not have on your Sabbaths when you lived on it. So more than just making good on his claims of justice in years past, the Lord is enacting a kind of mini-judgment day, out with the evil, so good can one day come in its place. Now, how the land of Israel carries over or relates to the plan of God in history today is a very debated subject. And this is not the time to open that can of worms. But one incredibly helpful way of working through the Old Testament is to think of Israel as a paradigm for God's dealing with all humanity, all the universe. Israel, in that sense, becomes like a sign act for us of God's ultimate perspective, his ultimate actions and relationships and character. And in the paradigm, the land becomes a mini-embodiment, a microcosm, of God's dealings with all the world. The new heavens and new earth depicted in Revelation will similarly include a cleaning house experience, to use Daniel Block's term. And it calls for our digestion of that future in an equally vivid way. See, this is not just ethereal stuff the realm of ideas and philosophers. Sin has a very concrete, very tangible effect on the earth. And the earth suffers from our corruption. It houses our destruction. And it therefore houses God's equally tangible judgment of that sin. Can we envision the destruction of a destructive land? Not in a thriller movie, day after tomorrow sense, but in a tangible justice and active redeemer sense. When our plush North American societies seem so peaceable and void of consequences, can we see the Lord cleaning house in our cities, our mountains, the four corners of the earth, in ways as vivid as what Ezekiel portrays? Then they will know that I am the Lord. When will that be for us? Can we share that mixture of brokenheartedness and holy anger that the Lord himself displays, even as the only one who is actually qualified to execute the judgment? Ezekiel's show isn't over. The the credits aren't rolling yet, so don't think that this is the only thing we're supposed to take in. Remember the big picture of the plot line. But stop to smell the thorny roses and let yourself be pricked by them. Envision the destruction of a destructive land, the vanquishing of evil, and you will know the Lord of justice, who in his mercy, while we were yet his enemies, died for us to deliver that repentant remnant and graft us in. The Rebind is made possible by the help of Andrew Horning, who handles the audio mastering and music for the podcast, along with the art contributed by graphic designer Adam Anderson. If, despite the ups and downs of the emotional roller coaster that is Ezekiel, you're getting excited about journeying through this massive epic in all its seasons, be sure to bring along some friends. 
Tell them to search for The Rebind on their favorite podcast app. But for now, let's open all of this up to the Lord where it counts and close by praying the words of the hymn, This is my Father's world. This is my Father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my Father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hands the wonders wrought. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven be one.